You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. As you remain standing, we'll uh, turn to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, while you're finding your place, um, just want to... First of all, I'll say how much uh, I appreciate Paul um, covering for me last week. Uh, he didn't get a text from me till about 10 o'clock that night uh, when I realized that there was no way I was going to be able to be here uh, last Sunday. And uh, he, um, he was able to, to put a sermon together and uh, deliver that to you, and I'm very thankful for him being able to do that. And absolutely. And I think, I don't know if he's here, I know his family's sick now, I do believe, and uh, it's running rampant through our community, which leads to my second announcement. Uh, all church activities this afternoon are canceled. Um, now, I know there's a shower. I'm not talking about the shower. I'm talking about Awana, student ministry, small groups. We uh, just have so many people sick. Um, number one, we don't have enough leaders. Number two, we don't want to spread it any further if we can help that. So enjoy your afternoon this afternoon, and just make sure you spread that word around if you could for us. We would appreciate that. Revelation chapter 6, let's pick it up in verse 9. He said, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by the gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains." Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Father, we pause this morning we say thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Father, for your healing touch. We thank you for your presence in the valleys. We thank you, Father, that um, not only do we know from your word that you never leave us nor forsake us. We know by experience that you never leave us nor forsake us. Even when we give you plenty of reasons, even when, Father, it seems like we've outrun your grace, even though, Father, it seems like when we have failed and failed miserably, that you're right there with us because you're a good Father. And, Father, your mercies are new every morning. We don't deserve them. We don't deserve your forgiveness. We certainly don't deserve your presence, but Lord, it is a gift that you have given to us. Just like the salvation that we found in Jesus, it was a gift that we received by faith. And Father, when we received it, if all we had ever gotten in that moment was the promise of an eternal heaven, if we never got anything else, that would be enough. But yet, Father, you have poured out on top of us grace on top of grace. Paul described it as manifold grace. And Father, we are thankful. We thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would guide us in it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. The deeper I go into Revelation, 
And the more time I spend in it, there's some things that I've begun to realize. I think I had seen this in the past, but maybe, you know, we have a tendency to forget things and, and maybe not read the culture in the light of God's Word always the way we should. One of the things that we see taught in the New Testament, both from the hand of Paul and John, is this idea that the rebellion that is connected to the Antichrist, we haven't got to that in the book of Revelation yet, we will. We're only going to spend a couple more weeks. We're going to finish out the month of November in Revelation, and then December, we're going to kind of turn our focus towards Christmas and uh, the first Advent. And then after the first of the year, we'll come back and we'll continue to walk through this book. But what I have begun to realize, maybe in a new way of understanding, is what John and Paul both taught in that, although the Antichrist is not here necessarily yet that we know of, and he certainly wasn't present when John and Paul wrote. One of the things that John and Paul both said is that the idea of the rebellion of the Antichrist, the way he will lead the world, the hatred that he will have for God and the kingdom, that that is not going to wait until the Antichrist comes, that that kind of spirit of rebellion is here today, and it is the very spirit of the Antichrist himself. Turn back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to show you what Paul wrote about that. And, and the reason this is important is when you're watching the same thing in the news and on culture that, that I'm watching, you're, you're seeing the same thing. And I think it's very helpful for us to understand what we're seeing in culture right now and the impact and the connection that it has to what we're reading about in Revelation. We tend to look at Revelation as something that's way off in the distant future. We tend to think of Revelation and Daniel and the things that Jesus said about the end of all time and the wrath of God coming to full fruition upon this earth. We tend to think that it's way off. But I want to show you this morning in connection to what I see in Revelation 6 and 7 and with what Paul and John said about this spirit of lawlessness that, it's a, that it is here today. Look at verse 3 in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul's going to describe to this church the, the character of the Antichrist and all that goes with him when he arrives. Look at verse 3. He says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. So Paul says that in advance of the arrival of the Antichrist, there will be a great rebellion. That rebellion will increase. The rebellion that John saw in his day, the rebellion that Paul saw in his day as he planted those 22 churches all across Asia Minor, he saw the rebellion firsthand. But notice that Paul says here that before the Antichrist is unveiled, there will be an increase in rebellion. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Notice how Paul describes him. He's a son of destruction. He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So this Antichrist and his system and those who will follow him will exalt themselves as though they are gods themselves. <clears throat> they will, they will hate. They will undermine all that is true and all that is real. He will eventually proclaim himself to be God. Those who are part of his kingdom will bow down to him as though he's God. And notice this in verse 6. And he says, you know that he is being restrained right now. That right now... In the world we live, we have to understand that things could be a whole lot worse than they are. They're bad, 
But if God was not restraining, if the Holy Spirit was not restraining the evil at this point, things would be astronomically worse. And what we're going to see in the tribulation and the great tribulation is that restraint being removed. So when we see all of the destruction, understand that the reason we don't see that now is because of the power of the Godhead Trinity. Notice verse 7. This is the key verse I want you to see. Paul says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Paul says that all that encapsulates what the Antichrist is about, his hatred, his rebellion, his rejection of all things true and right, Paul says that that is at work right now. Paul said that that was at work in his day. He tells the church at Thessalonica, he says, this spirit of the Antichrist, the work that he is doing the kingdom that he will build, that spirit is at work now. The reason Paul can say that is because behind the Antichrist, behind his kingdom, is none other than Satan himself. And Satan is is walking to and fro upon the earth, seeking whom he may devour. So Paul says very clearly that if you look, if he tells the church of Thessalonica, if they look at their culture, look at the world around them, they will see the spirit of lawlessness at work. Now, if Paul could say that all those many years ago, Can we all agree at the very beginning of this sermon, can we all agree that it's far worse now than it was then? Can we all agree to that? Shake your head if you're with me. All right. So the idea is, is that where we stand today, the era of lawlessness, rebellion, and hatred, which is the spirit of the Antichrist, is alive and well and thriving. John also writes something very similar. You don't have to turn over there, but 1 John 4, verse 3, John says this, He said, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and listen to this, and is now in the world already. John said to his hearers that the spirit of lawlessness, the spirit of the Antichrist is present and alive in John's day. Paul said it was alive and present in his day. And I'm here to tell you that the lawlessness of the Antichrist is alive and well today. Now, in both of those contexts, neither John nor Paul <coughs> was saying that the Antichrist himself was alive. There are some who interpret it that way. There are some who say that all that we see in the book of Revelation, the Antichrist himself has already come, he's already lived, he's already ruled, and he's already gone. I don't think that's what John or Paul either one is saying. I think John and Paul both were saying to the church, when you look at the culture, understand what you're seeing. What you're seeing is the spirit of lawlessness, which is rooted in Satan and will be led under this one, this great deceiver called the Antichrist. The four horsemen have already ridden. John has already seen them ride as those seals were broken. And those horsemen have unleashed great calamity upon the earth, but nothing will compare to what's coming. The four horsemen were bad enough. But as we see the rest of these seals, and then we get into the trumpets and then the bold judgments, it's going to get far worse. And one of the problems that we're going to have to deal with, or one of the issues, is that when we read what John saw, we don't clearly understand exactly what he's describing. So it leaves open a door for people to kind of read things into the text that really aren't there. And we have to be careful with that. And so there'll be moments where I'll say, you know, what John is describing here, it could be this. But I am in no way saying that that's what exactly what the text is saying. And you'll be able to find commentaries and books on the book of Revelation 
that will say, this is exactly what John saw, and there's no way they could possibly know that. So on the one hand, we take the text for what it says, we interpret it as it's written, but we also have to understand that what John is seeing, he's having a hard time describing himself. And he's describing it using a lot of Old Testament context and vision. He's using a lot of Old, contest, Old Testament context. But you've got to understand, when John describes what he's seeing, he's having a hard time helping us to be able to understand all that he saw. There are three groups of people that we're going to look at that's revealed in chapter 6 and chapter 7. But then there's a fourth group that's in the background that I really want to bring your attention to. So these three groups that we see in chapter 6 and 7, I'm going to show them to you. We're going to walk through them. But then there's a fourth group that I want to wait to the end to tell you about. And it's this fourth group that really is going to take the focus of the book of Revelation as we move deeper in to the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments. It's this fourth group of people that not only are going to be the focal point of all that happens in the book of Revelation, but this fourth group is alive and well today. And I think it's very important that we understand what's happening in our culture even now. So let's pick it up at verse, let's pick it up at verse 9, and we'll, I'll introduce you to the first group of people that John saw. So Jesus opens the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they have borne. So remember, Jesus has taken the scroll from the right hand of God the Father, and that scroll has been sealed with seals. And as Jesus breaks the seal, he unrolls the scroll, and he reads for us, or John sees what is happening in that moment. And then Jesus breaks another seal, and he unrolls it a little further. So what we have with the fifth seal being broken is that John sees something in heaven. And what he sees is around an altar, these who are, who've lost their life. And they are around the altar of God. Now, we don't know which altar this is referring to. We know that when we go in the Old Testament, we look at how God described to Moses on how to build the tabernacle and how to build the most holy place. We know that that, that blueprint was based on a blueprint that God has in heaven in his heavenly presence. We don't know exactly what altar this is. I, I tend to think it's probably the altar of incense. It's the place where incense is rising before God and it represents the prayers of his people. And what John sees are people around this altar and these people have been slain. They, they have died and now they're before God's throne and they're before the altar. And he says, listen to what he says. He says that they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So these who have died, died in the tribulation period of time, God's wrath that he is pouring out upon the planet. And they have died because of their testimony and because of their witness and because of their faith in Jesus. Now it sounds rather preponderous, doesn't it, that in the world in which we live that that people are losing their lives for the cause of the gospel. But folks, you've got to understand that all over the world, in places like Iran and Iraq and China and North Korea, yes, even in North Korea, they are believers. And they're being imprisoned and they're being put to death. And during this tribulation time, during this time where God's wrath is being poured out, there will be people who will be killed in the streets simply because of their faith in Jesus. I am convinced that here in America, we have lived a long time. We've had a long history of not having to deal with persecution the way that our brothers and sisters have all over the earth. 
everywhere else on the planet and in a lot of different places, people have been persecuted for years and years. They have friends and families that have been put to death because of their faith in Jesus. Now, I don't want to sound like a pessimist, but if you look at where things are and where things are trending, it is very possible, and you've heard me say this before, that we may actually be living in a time where we will see persecution right here within our own borders. I'm not talking about just people being mad at you because of something you believe. I'm talking about you being singled out specifically because you love Jesus. That people will be singling you out and, and making life hard for you, maybe even attacking you. We're already seeing it, folks. We're already seeing it all across our country. We're seeing it in Canada. We're seeing people who simply believe in Jesus, well, being hurt, abused, thrown in prison. These believers who have been killed because of their testimony cry out to God at this altar. They cry out to God, and here's what they cry out. They say, Lord, how long, how much longer is this going to go? How much longer before you're going to make the wrongs right? Now, I don't believe these souls, these people who are underneath the throne are crying out for God to go just kill everybody who's wronged them. I don't think they're looking for vengeance. What they are looking for is for God to fulfill his promises, and they say, to God, God, how much longer? When are their wrongs going to be made right? Listen to what God responds. Then they were given a white robe. They were told to rest a little while until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who will be killed as they themselves have been. God says something astounding here. God says to those who've already been killed for their faith, he looks at them and he says, look, rest for a little while. Put this white robe on. Relax. Rest. You don't have to worry about anything else, but you got to understand that there will be more deaths. There will be more of your brothers and sisters killed because they are going to continue to testify of Christ's goodness and grace. And because of that, because of what's happening on the earth, they will be put to death. I think it would do us well. All of us followers of Jesus in the American church, I think it would do us well to read stories and accounts of people overseas who've had to choose between their faith and their life and chose their faith. I think it would do as well to read the stories of even those in the past. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, in Hebrews chapter 11, we have all these people of faith. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, we have a great cloud of witnesses around us who are telling us to run with endurance. And just as we have the greatest example in Christ who took upon himself the cross and endured the pain of death upon a cross, those cloud of witnesses, those fellow brothers and sisters all over the world who are being forced to nail before a king or a leader or a police officer, and they're saying, unless you recant your faith, we are going to kill you and your entire family. And they kneel before these people and they look them dead in the eye and say, I will not, I will not, I will not recant the King of kings and Lord of lords, and they kill him on the spot. Church, I think it would do us well to read those stories and look at what incredible faith we see in brothers and sisters all over the world. This first group of people are the ones around the throne who've been killed for their faith. Verse 12, now we move on to the sixth seal. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars fell from the sky to the earth. As a fig tree sheds its winter fruit shaken by the gale, the sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So John 
sees this play out in front of him. And he's trying his best to describe what he's seeing. And it's unlike anything the world has ever seen. And and it's at this point, people begin to say, oh, well, that's got to be a nuclear war. Oh, that's got to be a volcano. Oh, it's got to be this. And I don't know what it is. It could be nuclear war. It could be a volcano. I don't know what it is. I can tell you this. It is cataclysmic on a level that the earth and our history has never seen before. And as we go through the seals and we get into the trumpets and we get into the bold judgments, we're going to keep coming back to this imagery of incredible, incredible destruction. The God, the creator of this universe, the one who spoke, the one who spoke and hung the earth in its place, the one who spoke and hung the planets, that God in all of his wrath and all of his power without restraint is pouring out upon this planet incredible, incredible destruction. He says there was a great earthquake and then the sun was blacked out and then the the moon looked like red blood. There are those who say, well, a nuclear war could cause all of that or a volcano could cause all of that. Again, I don't know. I don't think it's important that we know. I just think it's important that we see the power of God in this moment and what he's doing. Stars from the sky fell. Is that meteorites? What is that? He says the sky vanished and like a scroll was being rolled up. I know that you've witnessed major, major thunderstorms. I know some of you may even have witnessed tornadoes and We've all witnessed the hurricanes that have come through, and you look at the sky, and you see what the sky is doing. It's churning, and it's, it's almost like it's out of control, and it makes you feel really small in this big universe. And you look at that, and you, can, you go, what in the world's about to happen? You can sense in your soul that something's about to unleash. Take all of those experiences, all that you have seen in the natural world with storms and hurricanes and tornadoes, and multiply that times a 1,000. And that doesn't even touch what's happening here. John says he looks at the sky and it looks like it's just churning and like it's being rolled back. He says that every mountain and island was removed from its place. This earthquake and this cataclysm that is happening, mountains are falling down, islands are being broken in two and sinking into the ocean. He says that what's happening upon the earth, there's nothing to compare to it. So that first group of people are the ones who've died at the hands of evil people who have hated them for their faith and took their life. And then for a moment here, we have more cataclysm being poured out. Let me introduce you to the second group of people. Chapter 7. He says, After this I saw four angels standing with the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind may blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. Then I saw an angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. This particular chapter is very controversial. It talks about the 144,000 servants of God, and everybody gets into a debate as who are these people. There, there are cults who say that they're the 144,000. There are other people who say, well, the 144,000 just represents the entire church age. Well, I think with what John describes here, as he goes into great detail saying 12,000 from this tribe and 12,000 from this tribe, I think he's talking about 144,000 actual Jewish people who have put their faith in Jesus as Messiah. Now notice, this scene is not happening in heaven. This scene is happening on the earth. John says that he saw four angels. Those four angels are kind of holding back the destruction and the wrath. Not that they are as powerful as God, but they have been given this job for this moment in time. 
We'll see this as we walk through the book of Revelation. There's times where God stops the destruction for a moment of time. These angels represent God kind of taking a pause. And he's pausing so that these people, this 144,000, will be sealed and that they have a work to do upon the earth. Now this is in the tribulation time. This is the moment where God is pouring out his wrath and God hits pause for just a moment. And he takes this 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. And if you look at these 12 tribes, you'll see some discrepancies there of how things were laid out in the Old Testament. Not a big deal. I don't have time to get into it this morning. But I will say the reason Judah is mentioned first rather than Reuben is because Judah is the tribe of Jesus. So God says, we're going to pause the destruction, and we're going to seal these 144,000 because they are my servants. That word servant actually means slave. And God says, they've got a work to do. They are going to be a testimony of God on the earth. And you've got to kind of wrap your mind around this for a moment. This 144,000 that will be serving God, just like we see in the Old Testament, that when God's judgment is falling upon this earth, even his own people, what does God do? He sends a prophet. He sends people to go tell them that God's grace is available, that, that they can turn from their wickedness, that judgment is coming. These 144,000 will be able to minister on this planet as God's servants, as followers of Jesus. Yes, Jewish background, but they have put their faith in Jesus as Messiah, and they're going to go out into the earth, and they're going to proclaim the truth. Now get this. As this 144,000 is proclaiming the truth, guess what they can do? They can point to the meteorites hitting the earth. They can point to the volcanoes blowing up. They can point to the islands being moved. They can point to the sun being blacked out. They can point to the earth that has turned to blood red. And they can say to the people, see, see, this is God pouring out judgment. Won't you repent? Won't you turn back? Won't you rethink your rebellion and rethink where you put in your faith? So these 144,000 sealed, we see that word sealed a few times in the New Testament. Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 4 describes us as believers in Christ as being sealed by the Holy Spirit under the day that we are redeemed, which means in the presence of God. In other words, those of you who have put your faith in Jesus, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and you can't lose what God has given you. You didn't earn it. It's not you holding on to God, it's God holding on to you. So God gives you the Holy Spirit as a seal and a down payment to say, you are my child and I will never abandon you. That's important. That's important that we get that. So the second group of people is the 144,000. The first group of people that we see around the throne are those who've been slain. Now I want to introduce you to the third group. Look at verse 9. So now the scene's going to move back to heaven. And John says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So this third group, John looks, and around the throne of God are so many people that he can't number them. And John, when he looks, he's able to realize that there's different ethnicities. And I just think this is absolutely beautiful because I've been asked the question. I've been asked the question. Well, Pastor, what will I look like in heaven? Will I be able to recognize my loved ones who've gone on? Will I, will I recognize my grandfather? Will I recognize my parents? 
Well, I recognize that, that, that child that I lost, maybe the child that I miscarried, will I be able to, to recognize that child? And let me tell you, yes, on the authority of God's Word, and notice right here in this text, John looks and he's able to see that there are different ethnicities in heaven. There are different skin colors. Isn't that beautiful? John looks and he sees that, that whatever defined that person upon this planet, as far as their ethnicity, their race, their, their background, guess what? When we get to heaven, we're not going to be a bunch of whitewashed Caucasians. We're going to be a multi-ethnic group of people praising the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I think that's beautiful. Man, that's beautiful. And notice, and notice this, that, that John says there's so many there he couldn't number them. We know that there's about 12,000 different people groups. Actually, it's 11,243. Someone has sat down and defined all these different people groups from all over the world. It's almost 12,000. John says that when he looked, he saw people from all tribes, all people, and he says he saw them in clothed in white robes. And just like the, the robes that were given to those martyrs, these robes that these folks are wearing, they're standing around God's throne. It is a testimony of the righteousness that has been impugned to those people, those who have put their faith in Jesus. Jesus, We have been given righteousness through him. We have been declared holy. Get this, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you're following him, you are a saint. Isn't that amazing? You might not feel like it. Lord knows, Lord knows I don't act like it. But you're a saint, holy, righteous, perfect. Not because of what you did, but what Jesus did on your behalf. And when Jesus looks at you, he sees the blood of his son who's cleansed you. And then get this, it's incredible. Red blood cleanses you and makes you get this white, clean. So they are wearing these white robes as a testimony of Jesus and what he did on their behalf. In verse 11, all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, they all fell on their faces and they began to praise and worship God. Verse 12, saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving, honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And then one of the elders approaches John and says, hey, John, who do you, who do you say these people are? And John's like, uh, elder, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not about to say. And the elder says this, he says, he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You already see that these first three groups of people have something in common. All three of these groups of people have put their faith in Jesus. All three of these groups of people have been declared righteous. All three of these groups of people are welcomed not only into the kingdom, but for the 144,000, they have a work to do on the earth. For the other two groups, they are in heaven. And the reality is, is all three of these groups will find their final place before God's throne, worshiping him, not because they're good people, but because of what Jesus did on their behalf and made them holy. Bridge the gap between a holy God and a sinful humanity. They have been made holy. These three groups have that in common. Look at verse 15. He says, therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. See that word shelter? The Greek word behind your English translation is the word that we use for tabernacle. John uses it. It's interesting that John would use it again here. He uses it in John chapter 1, verse 14. There he talks about who Jesus is. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, verse 14. 
And that word dwelt among us means, is the same Greek word that we see right here, as shelter. It is the idea that Jesus came and tabernacled with us. What does that mean? The very presence of God with us. The tabernacle, what do we know about it? We know that the Jewish people would go into the tabernacle. They would offer blood sacrifices. But what was happening in that moment that the holy of holy place, what did that represent? The Ark of the Covenant, what did it represent? The very presence of God. Jesus came into the world and he tabernacled among us. And here it says that we will be tabernacled with him in his presence, never to be separated again. And notice the benefits of being in that tabernacle. They shall no more hunger. They shall no more thirst. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne and he will be their shepherd. We've got Jesus when we were in the throne room with John we have Jesus, the elder looks, and he says, look, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John looks, and he sees Jesus, but what does he see? He sees a lamb as though it had been slain, yet standing. And that lamb, Jesus, walks up and takes the scroll because he's the only one worthy. Now we see Jesus as described as a shepherd, and how fitting this is in this moment. Because of all those people, the ones who are before the throne who've been martyred, the ones who are gathered together to worship, they're all there because of Jesus' sacrifice. But get this, Jesus has gathered them in as any good shepherd would do. Not one has been left out. Not one will be left out. This great shepherd, when he gathers them in, and notice how this reads a whole lot like Psalm 23. The lamb is in the midst of the throne. He will be their shepherd. Listen to this. He will guide them to springs of living water. Is that not exactly what David wrote in Psalm 23? That that great shepherd would lead us, what, to still waters? Here, John sees the shepherd and how he's taking care of his sheep. He says he will lead them to living water. Remember what Jesus said about living water? Remember what he said to that woman at the well in John 4? He told her, he said, if you'll drink of the water that I give you, you will never thirst again. John says right here that he's leading these people who have suffered, many of them being put to death for the cause of the gospel. He says, I'm going to lead them and give them living water. And look at this last part. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I have, there's been a many time I've wrestled with that, thinking about all the tears that many of you have shed, that I've been able to share with you in the death of a loved one or the sickness that you've had to go through, all those tears that's just poured out of you. Maybe moments in time where you were so broken that just you and the Lord were alone and you just begin to weep. Notice that here in this text that he says he will wipe away every tear. The fact that there are tears there tells us something, doesn't it? He, he says that there's tears, but God's going to wipe them away. And there will never be any more tears. We see this again later on in the book of Revelation where God says again, I wipe away their tears, never having tears again. Isn't that going to be an amazing thing? That among the shepherd, among the sheep, Solomon would say there's a time for mourning. There's a time for crying. There's a time for brokenness. There's a time for laughter. But when we are gathered together with our shepherd, there'll never be any more need for pain, suffering. There'll never be any more need for tears as the result of suffering and pain. So we have the three groups of people. The first group are the ones who've been martyred for their faith. The second group is the 144,000 that have been sealed and are serving God upon the earth as a remnant pointing people to the, true, to the truth of what's happening. The third group is this millions of people that are gathered around the throne who've come out of the tribulation, who've had their 
their life changed by Jesus, who put their faith and been changed by Christ. But let me tell you about this fourth group. We got to back up because I want to show you who this fourth group is. Because this fourth group is going to be the focal point of a whole lot of verses we're going to be looking at ahead. So back up into chapter 6. These martyred ones who are underneath the throne, these martyred ones who are calling out for God to, to, to make their wrongs right, these martyrs have been destroyed by people who are lawless. Remember, we talked about the four horsemen. We talked about when they would ride, that all of the calamity that that would bring. But what we saw is that there's going to be neighbor rising against neighbor. There's going to be hatred on a level that we've not seen yet, although our world is filled with hatred today. The ones who were slain under the altar, were, they were killed by someone. They were killed by those who were lawless. They are killed by those who are part of the spirit of the Antichrist. They are, they are being put to death in the streets simply because of what they believe. And that's not just going to be something happening in Iran and Iraq. That will be happening on the streets of this country that has a constitution that says you are free to worship whoever you like. That will be happening here. These who've been put to death, they were avenged simply because, or they were killed simply because of their faith. We have to wait to chapter 16, verse 7, to see where God finally, finally fulfills this promise in chapter 6. Over in chapter 16, you will see those souls under the altar speak again, and they will say, God, you have fulfilled your promise. But I want you to hear from this, this fourth group, because this fourth group actually speaks to us. This fourth group, we have a testimony from this group of people. Look at verse 15. He says, in verse 15, he says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. So get this. As God is pouring out his judgment, these people who are living in the mansions, these people who have power and control, these people who are on the news every day, telling you, because you're a faithful follower of Jesus, telling you that you're ignorant and that you need to abandon your Puritan beliefs, that you need to get on the right side of history. It doesn't matter what the context is, but every day of our life, we've got experts telling us how stupid we are for believing in a man from Nazareth who supposedly died on a cross and resurrected. And it's coming more and more and more. And let me tell you who they are. They represent the spirit of lawlessness. John saw it. Paul saw it. Jesus warned us about it. They're telling us that we're the ignorant ones. They're telling us that we need to abandon what we believe. These same kings and these same powerful ones, when God begins to unleash his wrath, notice what they do. They hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Verse 16, not only that, but they begin to call out to the mountains and the rocks to fall on us. Notice this. This is them speaking. They're calling out to God, and they're saying, God, let the mountains fall on us. Let these rocks fall on us. In other words, they are saying, God, death would be better than your wrath. They are saying to God, God, just go ahead and take us out because we can't stand your wrath. The one thing they won't realize is that not only... Will they die, but then guess what happens after they die? Well, the full wrath of God. 
place called hell, Satan himself, torment, lake of fire. This fourth group calls out the same ones that are killing the saints, the same ones that are killing the faithful. Now they're calling out and saying, God, kill us. But notice this. He says, follow us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. These people, these kings, these leaders have rejected God. They've cursed him. They've hated him. They've denied that he even exists for most of their life. And now in this moment, all they can do is recognize that the only way that mountains could be split and islands sink into the ocean and the, the moon turn to blood and the sun be blacked out, the only way to explain that is that there's a God in heaven and there's a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And together, the Godhead Trinity is unleashing their power upon this planet. Notice this. They're not calling out to Allah. They're not calling out to Buddha. They're not calling out to some other false god. In this moment, they know who God God is. They know. This fourth group of people, verse 17, say this, for the great day of their wrath, their being the Godhead Trinity, has come. And they ask a question, who can stand? Who's going to survive this? Who, who is going to make it out of this alive? Well, we already know the answer to that question. The martyred saints who are under the altar, they are going to stand. The, the, the 144,000 have been sealed by God. They are going to stand. The multitudes around God's throne, washed in the blood of the Lamb, they will stand. And then finally, I want you to see that this fourth group is not present in what we see in chapter 7. The reason there are no more tears, the reason there is no more hunger, the reason there is no more thirst, the reason there is no more suffering, the reason that the shepherd is taking care of the sheep and that none have been lost is because in this place, around God's throne, there is only one in charge. And it's not the Antichrist. And it's not those upon the earth who are boasting great things. What we're going to find out in the weeks ahead, which is just absolutely staggering, is that as God is pouring this wrath out and as, in one sense, they recognize that it is God, in the other sense, they are completely rejecting God. Even though they see things happening upon the earth that there's no other way to describe this or explain it, they will continue to reject repentance. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by that. Go back in the Old Testament. What do we see? Well, we see Pharaoh, under intense pressure from God to let the people go. And after all of the chaos that God unleashes on Pharaoh, what does Pharaoh do? His heart gets even harder. Well, when we see Moses leading the people across the desert, and they come in against these other tribes. And, and Moses says, look, we worship the one true God, and you better understand that if you come against God's people, you're going to pay a price. And what do they do? They ignore it, they attack, and God wipes them out. All the way through the Old Testament, we see over and over again the sovereignty and the power of God protecting his people. Here we have, in this moment, the people of God gathered with the great shepherd, the lamb who made it possible. But notice we don't have any rebellion. Notice we don't have anybody filled with hatred. In this place, all of that is gone. The Bible says, behold, I will make all things new, the old things have passed away. Look at the contrast between what's happening in heaven and what's happening on earth. On earth, people are starving to death, and they're killing one another for a grain of wheat. 
On the earth, we've got people who are, are filled with such hatred towards one another upon this planet with bodies lining the streets. They are still killing at will, and they still understand that God is behind this, but instead of worshiping, instead of surrendering to him, they turn to the Antichrist. Notice that the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist, when that Antichrist is revealed, notice what he does. We'll see this later on. God marks his 144,000 with a seal, marks them on their forehead. Guess what the Antichrist does? He does exactly the same thing in his own way. He marks his people as well. And all of this is lining up. All of this is lining up for that great day when these people are going to rise up and think that they're going to overthrow God. That's where this is all heading. This fourth group of people are the people we see today. And this is what I really want to emphasize before I, before I get done. Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, he says, hey, the spirit of the Antichrist is alive and well today. John says to his hearers, John says, the spirit of the Antichrist is alive today. If it was alive for Paul and it was alive for John, it's certainly alive today. And here's what I want to put before you just to consider. If that was true for John and Paul, it's much more true today as we've gotten closer now to Jesus' return and all of this beginning to play out in front of our eyes. Is it possible, is it possible that that spirit of lawlessness is alive and well today and not only that, it's even more so? And could it be that we are a whole lot closer to this unfolding than we've ever been in our entire life. Could it be, could it be that instead of thinking this is something that's going to happen off thousands of years from now, and it very may well be, it may very may be that in God's sovereignty is going to be another thousand years, but I think we have to consider that as things get worse and worse and worse, as the anger and the hatred and the shootings and the lawlessness increase, we might want to pause and consider that maybe God is setting the stage, maybe God is pulling back a little of that restraint to set the stage for this lawless one to come, but making sure you understand that for every person who's put their faith in Jesus, we are out of here. We're gone. So could it be that we're right on the threshold? I don't know. But I can tell you this. What's going on in the world today fits in perfectly with this lawless one who will come. Everything that we see, the power of the media, the, the idea that you can see something happen real time on video, real time, literally within minutes after it happened, you're, something happens in the world and you're able to watch it over and over again. We have incredible amount of power vested in media. Isn't it, wouldn't it make sense that some powerful leader with all, it seems like he has all the right answers, empowered by Satan, come on the world scene and everybody starts to look at him. He's the guy. Matter of fact, he's not only is he the guy, he's a God. People are looking for that today. They're looking for something real and tangible. They're looking for something miraculous to happen. And when they see it, when they see it, it doesn't matter what truth they've heard about Jesus Christ. Not, it won't matter what they've heard about the Godhead Trinity. They will fall in love with this leader and follow him to their bitter end. The spirit of lawlessness is alive and well today, and it may be in your home. It may be someone in your life. It may be that you've got someone in your family that you've been trying to share the gospel with for years, and they just shut you down. They, they absolutely hate even having a conversation about it, they won't even have a conversation with you about it. 
I've got someone in my family like that. And, and you have seen them consistently over periods of time run towards disobedience. And you've, you've longed to be able to have a conversation where they could just see the truth that has changed your life, but yet they won't even talk to you about it. They get very angry when you bring it up. Well, now's the time to pray. Now's the time to, to ask God to intervene and break that cold heart. Maybe, maybe it's time to fast. Maybe it's time to love and serve that person right where they are. Just love them, serve them, show them the kindness of Jesus, even though I know they don't deserve it. You didn't either. Maybe it's time that we start doubling down on pursuing this person with love and grace and prayer so that God will break their heart because, folks, we are getting close to this thing wrapping up. It's time you choose who you're going to serve. If that describes you, if it describes that you, that you are the one who's running towards lawlessness, you are the one who's rejecting the truth, you are the one who's traded relationship with Jesus for religion, let me tell you, there's a price to pay for that. God, in all of his wrath and all of his power, he's going to right every wrong thing. You don't want to be on the receiving end of his wrath, especially while right now he's extending grace. Why in the world would you want to experience the wrath when God is saying, all preparations have been made, just receive the gift that I've provided for you. Why, why in the world would we walk by that? Choose this day who you're going to serve. Because I'm not so sure we've got much time left. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness and grace and the clarity of your word. Father, I don't know when you're going to wrap things up. I don't know what that timeline is. All I know is that John, your servants, John and Paul, were looking at their day. And they told their people, the people they wrote to, to, to wait expectedly each day looking for your return. And Father, 2,000 years has passed, and here we are. And we know it's closer today than it was then. And all the signs in our culture tell us that the spirit of lawlessness is alive and well. But there will be a day, there will be a day when all the wrongs will be made right. We will be gathered around your throne. We will worship you in freedom. No more tears, no more hardship, no more sickness. Lord, help us to see that that day could be today. And I pray, Father, that as we feel the weight of that, that we would hear your voice and choose wisely whom we're going to follow. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together in this worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook.